Welcome to another episode of the Kapalas Rift Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Widom, and this week we are going to be talking about Swift UI. So let's get into it. Okay, so it's been a couple of weeks since WWDC19 wrapped up, and now that all the dust has settled and we've had a chance to play with a few things, I think it's time for us to take a look and talk a bit about Swift UI. Swift UI, of course, is the new declarative language that has been introduced by Apple this year. So first of all, let's get the disclaimers out the way and the warnings. It's not even a 1.0 release yet. It is only in beta 2 right now as we this episode is being recorded. So I think we very much have to treat Swift UI as, you know, the same way that we did with the first two or three versions of the Swift language. We really need to you know, be cautious with it and also understand that it's probably going to change a lot over the coming versions, not only the coming beta versions as it works towards a 1.0, but even probably the 2 and version 3, you know, as Apple starts to, you know, work on this a lot more and finalize a lot of the details. You know, a lot of us will, of course, have been around long enough now with Swift to remember how very much that changed between versions. So just take all of that into account if you decide to play with Swift UI and also take that into account as we work through the discussion of some of the features here that have been shown to us. So as I say, Swift UI is a declarative way to describe the content for our views. And this is different than the you know pre-existing way where we build them on storyboards or we build them in code where not only do we build and construct the components, but we build and construct the look of them as well. And all the data is done, you know, everything's handled by us. Whereas this new declarative way of building it is essentially a way of saying, you know, hey, Swift UI, I want a button. And it's going to say to us, okay, well, I know what a button is, so I've got that. And then we're going to describe what that button looks like. So, you know, we may say, I want a button and I want it to be 100 pixels wide, 50 pixels high. I want the background color to be blue and I want the font label to be red and, you know, a, a font size is 16. So that's kind of how it's going to work. And when you see the code, you know, I actually feel it's very clean and it actually does make a lot of sense when you look at it. And if you are experienced with, you know, some of the other frameworks out there, you know, and of course, everybody's talking about how, you know, it's very similar to something like, you know, React or something like that, where you you build these components and then power them up with data. And I guess in many ways it is very similar. The important thing here is that this is going to be Apple's way going forward. That's, that seems very clear to us. You know, this is going to be the replacement for UI kit, uh, you know, on the Mac as well. You know, it's probably going to replace the NS views and, and all of these, you know, the watch OS is going to use it too. And that's part of the selling, you know, that Apple gave us on this, which is we're going to build our views once 
and they will essentially work on all the platforms. Now, of course, there's always a huge asterisk next to these things because, you know, anytime we see Apple demo them in the keynote or any of the sessions from WWDC, you know, they're always designed to show how convenient it is to work with a new feature. So a lot of the time, they're not very deep and complex like a lot of the apps that we would build in the real world. And so we have to take a lot of that into account. You know, I think it's too early a days yet for anyone to be able to say, you know, yes, we should start working with this and building complex UIs with it. I think we need to tread very carefully and it'll probably work just fine for simple UIs. So, you know, you've always got to look through the sort of the, the rose colored glasses that it's presented to us in in a lot of the sessions and, and wait and dig into it ourselves and find out what the truth really is. Now, that said, I'm, I'm very impressed with what I've seen so far. And I think, you know, I'd like to talk about a few of the, the features that I've seen demonstrated. And I've certainly played around with it a bit myself. And one of the things that is nice about it is not only can you edit the code, you know, when Apple showed it to us, they showed us this view in Xcode 11 where you have the code on one side and you have a a live canvas on the right-hand side. And the two ways you can work is you can either build the display by code and it'll update the canvas in real time, or you can actually edit the content on the canvas and it'll actually update the code for us in real time. Now, that's a great learning tool, of course, because it means we can move things around on the canvas. You can you know, right-click on objects on the canvas and change some of their properties, you know, things like alignment and things like that. There are also these what they call modifiers in the object library. So for example, there's a modifier to adjust, you know, a font or something like that or set it to a, a color red. And basically you can find these object modifiers in the library and just drag and drop them onto your objects like a, a text field or something like that and it's a very interesting and a very different way of working when designing you know iOS or Mac or you know watch OS or even TV OS uh, interfaces but I think we'll get used to it I do like the idea of being able to do it both visually and with code although I think in the long run you're probably going to find people using it in code more often than not because one of the things you can do you can take you can highlight some code. What you can do is you, you basically highlight a view in the code view and you can tell Xcode that you want to extract that, refactor it out, and it'll create a sub view for you. So rather than having, you know, something that's common to us is like these bloated UI, uh, you know, view controllers and how we always try to abstract that out and keep it simple, we can do the same thing with the views. And the beauty of that is that you can start to think of them as components, right? So let's say you create a login panel that has, you know, a label for the username and a password, and then you've got the two fields and a submit button or something like that. You can extract that view out into a, its own sub view and use it multiple times. And while we're talking about that, it's important to point out that the way this works is Swift UI takes everything that we put in a view and it rebuilds it for us into one view. So, you know, unlike now where we have this overhead of views within views within views, the way Swift UI is going to work is it will take all of this and compact it down into one view for us. So the overhead 
for rendering the view should be very small because you know the Swift UI is going to theoretically you know handle the optimization for us, and so therefore it should also be very fast to render out on the screen without us having to jump through hoops for performance. You know, again, we'll have to wait and see how that works in a real-world environment. But there's a big, uh, you know, big attraction there from a performance standpoint. So one of the other nice things that that should help with is animation. And now it's it's a little hard to explain, but basically everything, because everything gets rendered out into this one view that they call body, we only, according to Apple, we only have to care about animating the body. And Swift UI is going to take care of all the complexity of everything else for us. So a lot of the times you'll find, you know, if you transition from, you know, uh, you take a text field, something like that, and you transition it from one state to another, Swift UI is going to have some built-in animations for us that will automatically do the transition for us. Now, of course, we can override those and we can put our own custom ones in. But it's interesting, again, to see that you know, a lot of this is designed to make all of our third-party applications feel very familiar and work in a very familiar way for the end user. And I get it. You know, some people are going to argue that that just means our apps will conform to being more Apple-like. But honestly, from a user's perspective, that's probably a good thing. So animation should be easier. Now, when it comes to the data in these views, we have this concept that a lot of web developers will be familiar with and developers who have used some of these other cross-platform languages. We have this, this thing called state. Another part of this is, you know, Apple this year have brought in pretty much the equivalent of Rx Swift, right? This this reactive library that's been so popular. And they're they're sort of putting their version in Swift uh, for it and in Xcode. Now you know, you can argue the pros and cons, of course, just like everything else. At the end of the day, you know, if you use Apple's built-in version that they've built, you should be able to have confidence that, you know, it's going to be nicely optimized um, and, it, and it should just work out of the box, right? Whereas sometimes these third-party libraries, you have to sort of work with them a bit. Again, well, you know, that's debatable and people are going to fall down on both sides on this. But Getting back to this concept of state, what it means is the state of your application and your view is directly controlled by the data. And so as Apple kept saying through the entirety of the WWDC, you know, the truth of the data, right? The data is the truth. And that really is the case now because we're going to have this concept of state and state is going to hold the data and the view is going to be watching the state and when that state changes, it's going to update the view automatically for us. So we don't have to, you know, every time we add something to a table, for example, you know, Swift UI is going to have this fancy way of updating the screen automatically for us. Um, Apple had a very nice demo where they actually showed that it doesn't even have to be on the same device, right? So if you have, you know, a cloud sync or something like that and a device updates the data, it's going to, the other devices that have got it open will update automatically and you're just going to see a fancy animation transition and the table cell will appear, you know, that kind of thing. State itself is persistent and we basically, we create, you know, just essentially variables is what they are, but we actually mark them up. So 
Previously, where you have, might have something like, you know, private var my name of type string, the only difference you need to do is in front of that, you put an at symbol and the word state. So it's at state, you know, private var my name of type string. And then that basically puts in a place a binding. And then Swift UI now knows that that data may change. And wherever that data is used in the view, it's now the, those items, let's say it's a, a label, that label will now be bindable to that data. And then when the data changes, that label will automatically be updated for us. And the way that works is if we want to reference, you know, this new private state private variable that we've created called my name, you basically put a dollar sign in front. So in this case, you know, we would use the variable as you know dollar sign my name okay and that's that, that's how it works so it's bindable and that's how the binding takes place time for a break break time over something else to point out you know with this concept of the modifiers and to give you an example here you know you may have like just a text with a string blah right and then after it you're going to chain in and you put things like you know dot padding um, dot background and you specify a color you know those kind of things very similar to the way css works cascading style sheets in some ways um, and it, it kind of looks like it a bit as well but the important part here is that the order in which you specify these modifiers has to you know you have to respect the order right and the reason being let's say for example you've got this text field okay and then you know, in the code, you put like dot padding, dot background color. Well, what happens is, you know, it's going to work through the code, but it's going to work through the code backwards. So from the bottom up. So in other words, the background color will be, you know, set. And then the padding will take place after the background color is set. And then finally, it'll show the text. Sounds a little weird to try and explain it, but it actually... You know, once you see it happen, um, it's a very simple concept and you'll understand it. But be mindful of it because you may be trying to set the color of something and it's not changing. And that's because the, you know, the order in which you specify these modifiers is important, right? If I put, for example, the padding before, say, the background, you know, or something like that, then, you know, that padding is going to happen after the background is rendered on the screen and it probably sounds a little confusing but you'll see it once you play with swift ui and you'll understand so just remember that the order of the modifiers is important you can't just throw them all in there and expect it to just work it you have to respect the order and if something doesn't visually render the way you expect that's probably the first thing i would recommend you look at now you don't have to you know have these swift ui views in a new application, you can actually use them in your pre-existing code base, which is another interesting thing. And I think that this is a smart thing by Apple that it's going to help the adoption of this. Basically, what you can do is, to give you a couple of examples, there is what Apple calls a hosting controller. And this hosting controller takes just one argument. And the argument it takes is your root view. And that root view is basically your Swift view, okay? So let's say, for example, you've got a, you know, a Mac OS application, okay? Th then Mac is going to use the NS hosting controller. 
and you tell the NS hosting controller, hey, I want to use this Swift UI view in my app that has, you know, the, the standard Mac view. Okay. Same for, you know, uh, doing it on iOS and WatchKit. On iOS, we have UI kit. Okay as opposed to AppKit. So you would basically create a UI hosting controller and you say, UI hosting controller, I want you to use this Swift view inside my UI kit view. Okay. It's like a, I'm going to say it's like embedding it, but it's, it's not embedding in the, in a, in the sense that, you know, like we embed in other views or anything like that. It's basically just locked into the view via this hosting controller. The reverse also works as well, funny enough. So you can create a new application with Swift UI views. And then if you have some views, pre-existing views, say an AppKit view or an iOS uh, UI view, you know, or again, a watchOS, um, I believe it's called a WK interface object, if I remember rightly, you can take those pre-existing views and host those inside a Swift UI application. So you don't necessarily have to rebuild all your views at once. You can transition them over time. And the way this works in reverse, it is it has this thing that they call a representable protocol that you have to conform to. And you'll probably want to look into the details on that. But again, the interesting takeaway here is that Apple has given us a way to slowly introduce Swift UI views over time or to start a new application and use some of our pre-existing views from the, I guess at this point, older legacy systems, and we can use those. Interestingly enough, um, it, it will even work with Objective-C, so you're not even limited to just using, you know, say a Swift-based uh, UI view or a Swift-based um, AppKit view, something like that. It can actually be Objective-C based as well. So Apple's really working hard to enable us to use all of our legacy code and legacy systems and knowledge base to bring that forward and transition over time to Swift UI. And I think part of that reasoning is because obviously it's going to be a few years before Swift UI really matures into, you know, the fully fledged product that Apple probably wants it to be. So, you know, it behooves them to gives us a way to transition over time, because if they don't do that, adoption will probably be very slow, uh, you know. And of course, as developers, we're notorious for not wanting to to necessarily rebuild something when we've got it working perfectly OK. So this this idea of this hosting controller gives us a way to use, you know, our pre-existing code in our new apps and vice versa. So that's just a, a few notes on Swift UI. There will be, you know, a million examples out there, I'm sure, in the coming months. And I'll certainly be producing content as well to demonstrate Swift UI. And I think you should look into it. I don't feel it's production ready. You know, I certainly wouldn't be using it in any production apps just yet. Certainly you can't do it right now because if you use it in an app, you know, Apple's not going to let you put it in the store until the very least when they release the new OSs, which is, you know, probably going to be early October, something like that. So right now we have plenty of opportunity to learn and play with it, but we certainly couldn't release anything even if we wanted to. But that gives us plenty of time to prepare. But even then, I don't think I'd be wanting to put out a 1.0, you know, Swift, one, Swift UI 1.0 application right out just like that. 
Um, remains to be seen how stable it is when we get to the final version. So anyway, that's just a, a few notes and observations on Swift UI. You should definitely go to the Apple developer portal and look into it because it is something we're all going to have to embrace in the future at some point, just like we did with Swift. So I'll leave it there for this week. Uh, hopefully you've take, got a takeaway here or at least you've got an interest for Swift UI. Please feel free to uh, like and subscribe this episode, share it with friends, you know, share it with other developers um, and give me feedback. You know, go to peterwidham.com forward slash contact and you know, tell me what you think. I think there's going to be lots of conversation on SwiftUI going forward. So let's go ahead and get the conversation started.